Hey, let's go to the book of 2 Kings tonight. We're going to look at tonight in the Old Testament, 2 Kings, and we're going to go to chapter number 5. 2 Kings and chapter number 5 is where we will start. Let me make sure that I'm turned on here. It might be my fault. No, we got it. All right, we're good to go. 2 Kings chapter number 5. If you're unfamiliar with finding places in the Bible, um, 2 Kings is towards the beginning of the Bible, generally towards the beginning. If you open up your Bible to the middle, typically it opens up to Psalms, Proverbs, Job, somewhere in that range. And then if you go to the left, then you'll see, uh, let's see, books like Chronicles and Nehemiah, but keep going to the left and you'll come to the book of Kings. If you get to Samuel, Judges, Deuteronomy, um, Genesis, you went way too far, then uh, go back to the right. And we're going to go to 2 Kings, and in just a minute, we're going to look at chapter 5 and uh, read several verses out of this passage. Hey, um, are you all familiar with Aesop's fables? Yes. Have, you ever, have you ever heard of these? How many, just, just out of curiosity, this is merely for my curiosity's sake, how many of you have ever read or heard of or read or heard Aesop's fables? May I see your hands? If you, okay, so m- most um, of you. This is, this is old English writing that is, actually I think it's before old English writing, but it is uh, basically little stories, short stories that always have a, uh, have a truth or a truism at the end of them. If you've never read Aesop's fables, you've probably heard of like the race between the tortoise and the hare and the, uh, you know, the hare is faster and takes off, but then it rests and the tortoise catches up. And cartoons have been made about this, and I think Adidas sells, sells running shoes by way of this. And there's just there's a lot of things done. Well, that's an Aesop fable kind of thing. It's one of those stories that has a truth that, that it illustrates. Well, that didn't originate with Aesop or <laughs> with anybody else um, except for God himself. God is the one who originated the, let me give you an illustration and teach you a truth. And the reason why God does that is because of the way he built us. Finish this statement if you know it. Um, A picture is worth... Okay, so you've heard this before. A picture is worth a thousand words, meaning something you look at can speak as if it had a thousand words to it. It It can bring up all kinds of emotions, all kinds of thoughts, sometimes some memories, and word pictures are the same way where there is a storyline given and it can illustrate a truth in a way that is significant. In the Old Testament, much of what God gives to us, like in 2 Kings chapter 5, is historical accounts of things that took place in a time period that for historical purposes doesn't really mean much to us. But for illustration purposes... It's huge. This is one of those historical accounts. I'm not going to say story or I'll attempt not to because I don't want you to think this is an Aesop fable, that this is just an allegory that somebody wrote. This is something that actually took place and is recorded as history, but is for us a great illustration of a truth that is deeper than what the story says itself. So in just a moment, I'm going to begin reading in verse number 1 of 2 Kings chapter number 5, and I'm going to read most of this story, which means we're going to go all the way down to ah, verse number 15, probably. Now, here's the deal. If I'm reading that number of verses, I'm reading that many verses, if you're anything like I am, 
whenever I'm sitting in a group and a teacher or a preacher stands up and reads a lot of verses, my brain has the tendency to go other places. Now, I'll do my best to read with word color and to engage you along and along. But I want, if you will, please, connect with the story. That is, let, let yourself see it and stay engaged in it. I'm sure a lot of you had a lot of busy things going on today, and there may still be some lingering things in the background of your brain. To the best of your ability, just set those aside for a minute, hear this story, and I want you to see not only the story, but what the story more significantly illustrates for us. Because in this story, you're going to see you. You won't recognize it right away, but you're going to see you. And I want to show it to you. This, this is really excellent. Verse 1, 2 Kings 5. The Bible says this. Now, Naaman, he's kind of the leader of this story. He's, he's the main character. Now, Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master. Let me stop just real quickly for those who might not be familiar with what's being said here. Again, this is something that took place a couple thousand years ago, and it took place around the land of Israel, which is where most of the stories in the Old Testament center around. But this isn't actually in Israel. This is a neighboring nation to Israel, and Naaman was a man who was, as it says here, a captain of the host of the king of Syria. Syria is that neighboring nation, and he was a great man, the Bible says, with his master, and he was honorable because by Naaman, the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. He was also a mighty man in valor, but the Bible says he was a leper. Okay, a couple things. Just And I won't do this with all the verses. This is just to get us into the storyline so that you can see it accurately in your mind's eye as I'm reading through this. When the Bible says that the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria by him, basically what was happening historically at this time was Syria was ruled by other nations. But Syria rebelled against the foreign rulership that was over them. And one of the main men of Syria that was used to give deliverance to them was this man called Naaman. So this, this is a national hero. This guy has status. He, he, what, when people saw him, they pointed and went, whoa. Guys, men stepped out of the way, not because he was mean, but it was a respect. Let, hey, hey, look out. Naaman's coming. Naaman's coming. And, and this, this was this man, Naaman. And then the Bible says that though he was a mighty man in valor, it says, but he was a leper. Now, leper refers to a disease that Naaman had. It was called leprosy. And a person who has leprosy is called a leper. Now, in Israel, neighboring nation, somebody who had leprosy was actually ostracized from society. Leprosy is just a general term that talks about a skin disease. And basically what this disease, leprosy, does is it gets into the skin and it begins to actually eat the flesh. It's not something that in and of itself is deadly, but the result of it always leads to, ends up with death. Literally, people who had leprosy would walk around 
because, uh, because of it attacking the flesh and the skin, they would have fingers that would fall off or a nose that might fall off or an ear that would fall off or even an arm. And eventually, that would allow for there to be infection and death might happen. In Israel, when, when somebody had leprosy, they, they could not just walk into town in order to buy food in order to live. They couldn't even live with their family. They lived in colonies that were just these people who had leprosy. And if they were coming in contact anywhere close to anybody else, they had to cover their face. <laughs> Sounds familiar. They had to cover their face with a cloth and yell out, unclean, unclean, unclean. And everybody would walk around and not want to get, not want to get anywhere near. Now, Naaman was not in Israel, so he was not ostracized, but he had that disease. So we find out this man, Naaman, was great. He was honorable. Uh, he was a mighty man in valor, but he was a leper. Now, I'm going to continue reading. Now that you kind of have it in your brain, I hope, listen to the story. Listen to what happens. And the Syrians had gone out by companies, by armies, and had brought away captive out of the land of Israel a little maid, a little girl, and she waited on Naaman's wife. And she, the little girl, the maid, said to her mistress, Ah, would God, my Lord, Naaman, were with the prophet, there's a prophet in Samaria, for he would recover him, he would heal him of his leprosy. And one, somebody went in and told Naaman, saying, Thus and thus said the maid that is of the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, when he heard about this, Go to, saying this to Naaman, go to, go, and I will send a letter unto the king of Israel. So Naaman departed and took with him ten talents of silver and six thousand pieces of gold and ten changes of raiment. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, this is what the letter said, Now, when this letter has come unto thee, behold, I have therewith sent Naaman, my servant, to thee, that thou mayest recover. Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man doth send unto me to recover a man of his leprosy? Wherefore, consider, he says to his counselors, I pray you, and see how this king seeketh a quarrel against me. He wants to start a fight. And it was so when Elisha, he's the man of God, the prophet, had heard that the king of Israel had rent his clothes, that he sent to the king, saying, Wherefore hast thou rent thy clothes? Let Naaman come now to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and with his chariot and stood at the door of the house of Elisha. Now here's what Elisha does. Look at verse 10. And Elisha sent a messenger unto him, saying, Ahem. Go wash in the Jordan. The Jordan was a river that was in, in Israel. Go wash uh, in Jordan seven times, and thy flesh shall come again to thee, and thou shalt be clean. But Naaman was wroth, and he went away and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and strike his hand over the place and recover the leper. 
Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? May I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. And his servants came near and spake unto him and said, My father, Naaman, if the prophet had bid thee, had told you to do some great thing, wouldst thou not have done it? How much rather then when he saith to thee, wash and be clean? Then he went down and he dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the saying of the man of God. <laughs> and his flesh came again like unto the flesh of a little child and he was clean. And he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and came and stood before Elisha. And he said, Behold, behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth, but in Israel. Now therefore, I pray thee, take a blessing. Let me pay you of thy servant. But he said, that is, Elisha said, As the Lord liveth before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Let me read just the first part of verse number 17. And Naaman said, Shall there not then, I pray thee, be given to thy servant two mules, burdens of the earth? For thy servant will henceforth offer neither burnt offering nor sacrifice unto other gods, but unto the Lord. Okay, now that's the end of the story, or at least where we will stop for tonight's purposes and uh, what, what a great story. I'm going to stop right now, and I'm going to ask the Lord just to help me to be able to explain why this is so important. That is, it's not just story time with Uncle Tim. We're, we're actually learning something important here, and I, I want you to be able to get it, and I want to be able to explain it clearly, and I'm going to ask God to help me, all right? Father, I need your help. Um, please help me to, in a succinct manner, but in a very clear manner, uh, tell the reason why you recorded this for us, why you have us look at it tonight. I pray that every person that's here would have ears to hear what it is that you're saying to them because I'm convinced, I'm convinced that what you want us to know, we should know. And if you say it, then it has value. It has importance. And it ought to be very important. If, if, yes, yes, it is. So help us tonight, please. I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, what a great story. Now, my tendency is to want to retell it, but we just read it, so I'm not, I'm not going to. But I want you to see basically the flow of the story, and I'm going to put it in a format that can kind of help us remember it, and I might look back at some verses, because in, when you see the summary of it, that's where you go, oh, oh, that's, that's why this matters to me. Why, that's why this affects me. Here, here's basically what this story tells us is this. Naaman was good, but he had a problem. Naaman was good, but he had a problem. In verse number one, the Bible talks about how Naaman was an honorable man with his master. He was well known. He was a man of valor. Hey, um, guys, especially men, um, are you, are you a, uh, have you ever wanted to meet someone that uh, maybe nationally or even worldwide is someone of, of renown? Or have you ever thought it'd be neat to meet someone who is like, like what, what Naaman is like? When I read about Naaman, my brain goes, I would love to meet somebody from SEAL Team 6. 
You know, somebody who goes into situations where, where none of us, except for in our dreams, would be asked to go into, and they do things, they're probably doing things right now that nobody else, nobody else can know about, and they put their lives on the line. They're living in situations where most of us would just absolutely faint, and they do it on a regular basis, and they train for this. They are just a man's kind of man that if they walked into the room and you knew it was somebody from SEAL Team 6, you'd just kind of step back and go, whoa, oh man. I'd like to shake their hand, but I'm not sure I actually should. Okay, that's, that's Naaman. Naaman is this guy who, in the eyes of everybody, is just uplifted. He was great with the, his master, the king, in the eyes of everybody. In fact, he was so good that their nation had gone out with armies, taken out of the land of Israel a little maid to be a servant to his wife, and when he is sick, she says, as a slave, oh man, I hope he gets healed. Well, you wouldn't expect that from a slave who's been taken from home. But he must have been a good man. The Bible says he was honorable, involves his being wealthy, but he must have been a good man. But, hey, Naaman had a problem. And his problem was leprosy. And his problem, while it didn't kill him instantly, was eventually going to be the cause of his death. And in that day and time, as it is actually the case still now, there is no known cure for leprosy. Now, in the United States of America, we don't deal with leprosy as much because of our habits of cleanliness and things that have happened. But in other parts of the world, there is still leprosy and there is still no known cure for leprosy. So that eventually, leprosy was going to take his life. So, Naaman was good, but he had a problem. Okay, second thing in this whole, uh, in this whole lesson we learned here. Um, there was a problem, he had a problem, but there was a cure. So, like we read, Naaman goes to Elisha, and Elisha says to him, or through his servant says, if you'll go wash in the River Jordan, then you will be cured. Okay, real quickly, time out. There's no known cure for leprosy. The River Jordan, in comparison to the rivers as described here, Farpar and Abana and the other nations, aren't, it's, not, it's not as if this had any special power to it. It's just the matter that the cure that was given by the man of God, Elisha, was a, was a cure that in and of itself wasn't anything special, but God had enabled it. That is, it was a divine cure. And the cure had been offered. So Naaman was good, but he had a problem. He had a problem, but there was a cure. Okay, hey, stay, stay with me. There was a cure, but he had to receive it. Did anybody else notice Naaman's reaction to the cure that was offered? A couple things irritated Naaman. One, Elisha's not even the one who came out and told him what to do. Elisha sends a servant, the prophet sends a servant and says, tell Naaman to go wash in the River Jordan seven times and he'll be healed. That's the cure that's offered to him. So the prophet doesn't even come out. Well, that, that frosts Naaman. He said, surely, I thought, surely the man of God would come out. And then he didn't like the prescribed cure. He didn't, he didn't like it, I think, in part, because of the, 
humbleness that he would have to come to to go down to the river. And he thought to himself, this is not, I'm not used to taking orders. I give orders and things happen. But I don't take orders. And you're sending your servant to come tell me to go wash in this river in order to be clean? I don't, I don't think so. And he turns around in a rage and heads back towards home. But his servants come to him. And this is, this is interesting. They call him father. It's just a term of endearment. Of, hey, we want this for you. And they listen to, the, listen to the logic. I love this. Listen to the logic. They say, hey, if Elisha had told you to do something great, if he had said, um, walk, go on your knees to the highest mountain and climb it on your knees and you'll be healed, wouldn't you have done that? If he said, go single-handedly and face 10 men from a neighboring nation and fight and defeat them, and if you defeat them, then you'll be clean. Wouldn't you have attempted that? How much more then if he says, go wash and be clean? Naaman almost refused his only hope of cure because his Arrogant. His pride would not allow him to step that direction. But yet, when he saw the truth of it, he went, yeah, okay, you're right. So, Naaman was good, but he had a problem. He had a problem, but there was a cure. There was a cure, but he had to receive it. And then lastly, when he received it, he worshipped the God that cured him. So you, you heard the story. He goes down in the river. He washes seven times, dips down seven times. Seventh time he comes up. Miracle. Hey, by the way, not a fable. Real story here. This is a historical account. It's what took place. He comes up after the seventh time down, and his body, his flesh is like that of a child. He's completely clean. Okay, this is one of those duh moments of there's no cure for leprosy but I'm cured. Then it follows logical sense. This God must be real. And he decides, determines there, that he is going to worship the God that cured him. He goes back to Elisha. He offers him the two mules. I think they must have been used in worshiping and sacrificing to other gods. And he says, in essence, I'm done with that. I will now only worship the one true God. Okay, so you ready? This is Naaman. Naaman was good, but he had a problem. He had a problem, but there was a cure. He had a, there was a cure, but he had to receive it. And when he received it, he worshiped the God that cured him. That's the picture. That's the story. That's the historical account. Okay, now what about us? What does this, what, what possible meaning can this have for us? Because I'm looking around, and at least I don't see anybody that I think has leprosy. Uh, so so what, what is, now there may be people in here who are struggling with some sicknesses that I don't know about, but, but this has a deeper meaning. Why did God record this thousands of years ago and preserve it? Why are we reading it tonight? Okay, here's the reason why. Are you ready? Because this truth is a shadow. It is a picture of something that is deeper and greater. Namely this. This is a reflection of us in a spiritual way. So here's the truth. 
You may be good, but you have a problem. You probably are. That is, you're probably a good person. You, you may be a person that when other people see you, they think to themselves, that, that's just, that's a good guy. He, he does right. That's a, good, that's, a good, that's a good lady. Yeah, I'm telling you, they're just nice. They're a great neighbor to have. They're a good old boy, a good old girl. They just, they're just great people. They take care of their parents and they are religious and they do, they do all the things. They check all the boxes of being a good person. And that is probably true about you. But listen, and please catch this. You may be good, but you have a problem, just like all of us do. Namely, that though we may be good, all of us, while we are good, are not perfect. We are sinners. And our sin is a, a disease that, while it hasn't right now caused our bodies to die and be buried in the ground, it is a disease that always brings to, it leads to, eternal death. And spiritually, right now, we are separated from God because He is holy and we are not. And friend, understand this from the Bible, and this is not my making this up, that, that there, there is no one that is good enough that sin has not caused an issue, a problem, a separation from God that is not going to eventually lead to death. All of us are sinners. Regardless of how good you have been, you can't, you can't be good enough to erase this leprosy of sin out of your heart. In fact, even if you turn over a new leaf and do your best not to do any bad things anymore, you know this as well as I do. You still deal with it in your heart. Sir, you and I, we still have to be careful about not allowing our eyes to look on someone to whom we're not married and lust after that person. And God calls that adultery. It's a sin. And I have hatred that can stir up in my heart. Why? Because sin goes so much deeper than just what I do with my hands. It's what I am as a person. And it is inside of me. And it's not something that I can eradicate. It's not something that I can wash and get rid of it. No. You see, I may be good, or you may be good, but all of us have a problem. The Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none that is righteous. No, not one. And the soul that sinneth, it shall die. So you may be good, but you, may, but, but you have a problem. Secondly, you have a problem, but there's a cure. Now, this is a cure that's designed and given by God because there's nothing else that can ever cure this. There's nothing that you or I can do. There's no doctor to whom we can go. There's no pill that we can take. There's no religious activities that we can be involved in that will erase our sin. But there is a cure given by God, and that cure for our sin is Jesus Christ himself. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, lived the perfect life that we cannot. His Father is God, but He came to earth as a man. That is, He was born as a boy and grew up, and He never did anything He was not supposed to do, and He always did everything He was supposed to do. 
so that he earned by his life the right to be with God. But instead of accepting what he earned, the Bible says that Jesus Christ died a death on the cross that he did not deserve to die, shedding his blood. Okay, why? Why? If he did, if he did not deserve death because only sinners have to die, so why did Jesus Christ then die? And the answer to that is this. Because it was God's provision. It was God's cure for the sin of mankind that someone without sin would take the penalty of sin. So that someone who was guiltless, innocent, perfect, holy, allowed himself to be strapped with the punishment that belongs to the guilty. And God says in his word, that Jesus Christ is the only way, the only truth, the only life, and no man, sinful, good as I try to be, sinful, no man can come to the Father but, except for, by Him. So you may be good, but you have a problem. You have a problem, but there's a cure. Hey, there's a cure, but you have to receive it. Now, this is sometimes where people stumble at this. So please stick with me through this. And I want, please think through this. I, I, I am acting in the place of of Naaman's servants right now. I want to, I want, I want to appeal to, to your, your logic and your thinking, and I, I want you to see how important this is. Because it's not unusual for people, especially people who are good but still have a problem, to know about the cure. To know, okay, yeah, I believe there's a God, yes. Oh, I even know about Jesus. Yes, and I believe that he died on the cross. Yep, I believe that. I believe that he died and he was buried and he rose again, all of which is true. I believe all of that is absolutely true. But did you know that that's not receiving the cure? In John 1.12, the Bible says, to as many as receive him... To them who receive him gave he the power, the ability to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Okay, please listen to this because this is so important. I would hate, I would hate for someone in here or who's watching by way of online to think to themselves, I already believe that God exists, that Jesus died, he was buried and rose again. I believe
believe all of that is true, and because you believe that those things are true, or you've been religious, you've been baptized, you've burned candles, you've been confirmed, what, whatever religious activity you, you place on, and you think to yourself, because of that, I'm, I'm sure that I'm okay. And because you can't see sin on your arm, you, you don't realize you're not okay because you have not yet received Jesus Christ. To receive Jesus Christ means to believe on him. Not believe that he exists, but believe on him. To receive him as your, as your savior, as the one who can cure you of your sin, who can forgive your sins and make you God's child, and you receive him. You believe in him, on him. You accept him as your savior. And let me see if I can illustrate it in such a way so as to make it make, it make sense. Um, this is a pretend illustration. It's not true. Totally made up. So don't think this, is, this actually happened. Totally made up. Let's say that my family lives in a two-story house. And uh, Brittany and I, my wife and I, have a bedroom on the bottom floor. In fact, most of the bedrooms are on the bottom floor, except for one bedroom, and that's on the top floor. And we have, uh, we have Asher. He's our, he's our eight-year-old. He stays upstairs. The boys, all the other boys are downstairs. Well, one night, about midnight, I wake up <coughs> to the smell of <coughs> smoke. So I, I hit Britt, and I say, Brittany, look, something's, something's not right. I smell smoke. Get the boys and get them outside. I'm going to go upstairs and get Asher. we got to get out of here. So I come out of our bedroom, and I go around through our kitchen. I go around to the living room where the stairs are upstairs, and I find out the reason why I'm smelling smoke is because the stairs are on fire. And they're on fire to the degree that I can't get up. So all of a sudden, I'm very awake. And I turn and head out the front door. On the way out the front door, as I go out, I reach down and grab a handful of pebbles we have on the walkway beside our path leading out to the driveway. And I run around to where Asher's bedroom window is on the second floor. And I start taking these rocks and I start throwing them at the second floor window. And I'm yelling. It's midnight. I don't care. I'm yelling, Asher, David, Asher, wake up. Hey, Asher, wake up. Asher, you've got to wake up. Wake up, Asher. And finally, a groggy Asher comes over to the window, and he unlocks it. He looks down. He opens it up. Well, when he opens it up, the air that comes in from the window sucks the fire that was outside of his door, underneath his door, and his room starts on fire. So he turns around, and he sees that. He turns back around, eyes wide, and I'm pleading with Asher. Hey, Asher, look at me. Hey, pal, look at me. Look at me. I need, I, you're going to have to jump. You can't get out any other way. You're going to have to jump. Sit on the windowsill. Get, get your legs on the, yes, hey, look at me, not the fire. Look at me. Get your legs on the outside of the windowsill. Sit there. Now listen, you're going to jump, and when you jump, spread out your arms, and I'm going to catch you. You've got to jump. You've got to. By now, the fire's halfway across the bedroom. He can feel the heat against his back. He's looking down at me, but it's a long ways down. And so he's looking down at me, and I am Leading with him. Asher, I have never dropped you before. I will not drop you now. You've got to jump. I will catch you. Now jump, Asher, David. Jump. And Asher puts his hands on the windowsill and he pushes off the sill. At that moment, when he pushes off, 
His trust is completely in me to do for him what he can't do for himself. If I decide not to catch him, or if I don't have the ability to catch him, then he can't do anything to save himself. What Asher displays when he pushes off that windowsill is, in essence, if he could speak it, what he would say is, Dad, I'm trusting you to catch me because I can't. Okay, when the Bible talks about believing on Jesus Christ, that's what it is. It means I realize all these good works, all this goodness, all the honor, everything that I thought was, was what gave me credence to stand before God, none of it, none of it can save me. And in essence, I'm saying, Lord Jesus, my sin, this leprosy, my sin is going to send me to hell. I can't do anything to save me. I don't want to die. I don't want to be separated from you. I need you to do for me what I cannot do for myself, and I believe you can and you will. I receive you as my only hope for salvation. That's what it means to receive Christ, to believe on Christ. Now, the hard part is, not hard, hard to understand sometimes is, it's a mental picture. But the act, please catch this phrase, is a decision of faith. A decision of, I can't save me. I need you to do for me what I cannot do for myself. Okay, hey, can I tell you something? The Lord Jesus Christ has never dropped anybody. And he won't drop you. What Christ did on the cross is enough. He is able to save all. Will you say, I have pretty serious problems. I have lots of sin. I have some sins with hooks in them. I struggle with drugs or alcohol or pornography. I I struggle seriously with lust in my heart. If you want to talk about sins of the heart or sins of the hands, yeah, I, I got them. Let me tell you something. Hey, please catch this. Please know this. For you to refuse the offer of God saving you is the same thing as Naaman going, it's not what I thought it would be. I'm going back home. And the only thing that can be called is arrogance and pride. And you need to humble yourself and recognize you can't save you, but Christ can. And if you'll call on him He will save you. The Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So you may be good, but you have a problem. You have a problem, but there's a cure. There's a cure, but you have to receive it. And then lastly and quickly, when you receive him, you'll want to worship the one 
who saved you. That is, when you recognize the kindness of God in offering His Son, and you receive the Lord Jesus Christ, then it makes sense. <laughs> yes, I'm saved from the sin that condemns me to hell and separates me from God. Now that's out of the way. Yes, I will worship the God that saved me. I'm saved for eternity. That is so much better than anything that sin could ever give to me. <laughs> Lust only lasts for a moment and it never satisfies. God promises me forever. Yes, I'm going to worship the God who saved me. And you will. You'll want to. Now, it's possible for people who have been saved to sometimes lose that desire to worship the God who saved them. I would encourage those of you who've, who've already made the decision to trust Christ, but maybe that worshiping of God has waned. It, it's, it's kind of pushed away because you haven't thought on it. Why don't you remember what you've been saved from? And why don't you take some time to worship the God who saved you? Now, if tonight you're here and you, you, you're good, but you know you have a problem, and tonight you believe that there is a cure, but you've not yet received it, you've not received Christ, then tonight we'd like to help you do that. If you would like to receive Christ, or if you have questions about that, that's what we want to do is help you. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to, I'm going to thank God for the time we've had together. Um, Pastor Finney is going to be standing, Pastor, either at the front or the back, whichever, whichever you desire. And after I'm done praying, I'm just going to ask, just for a brief moment, that people remain with heads bowed and eyes closed. My wife will be at the piano. She'll play through a song on the piano. If this brings up a decision you need to make or you have questions, then while people have heads bowed and eyes closed, you come see Pastor. And Pastor will connect you with somebody where you, you can go to the other room, ask questions, and you can leave tonight knowing that your sins are forgiven and you're at peace with God and you can begin to worship the God who saved you. Don't let pride of, I didn't think it would be that way. I always make my own way. I can do it myself. No, no, no. No, I can't, you can't. No, you can't. But God offers you salvation. So I would encourage you, come and see Pastor. Father, I ask now that you'd help in the next few moments, help this to come to light completely in the hearts and minds of everybody that's here. In the name of